Hello you, and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are talking about broadcast news. We are talking about it with our great friend, Paul Saborin. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my tremendous co-host, Sarah Marshall. Broadcast News is a 1987 American romantic comedy drama film written, produced, and directed by James L. Brooks. It stars Holly Hunter, Albert Brooks, and William Hurt. Paul Saborin is uh, Paul of Paul and Storm. Uh, this band, Paul and Storm, are favorites of Dr. Demento. I don't have many goals, and this was not a stated goal already, but now that I know and really, I've known this, but now that I've really thought about the fact that one could be a favorite of Dr. Demento, that is a goal. <laughs> Paul has achieved that goal. Paul is also one of uh, the people who makes the Joko cruise happen. That's where we met him. Uh, it is a, a cruise formed around Jonathan Colton fandom. <laughs> And the sorts of people that would like music like uh, Jonathan's and Paul and Storm. Uh, it's a tabletop gaming cruise, of course. We were on as uh, as talent, where we met all sorts of uh, fabulous and wonderful people, including Paul. And that is why he is here. We love Paul. Paul is just an absolute delight. And I'm so happy. And Paul is the sort of guy who would bring a movie like Broadcast News to us. We are grateful to him for that. Oh, you know, before we begin, I just want to offer a super quick content warning. Date rape, acquaintance rape, rape, they all come up in the context of the news reporting that happens in this movie. We don't go into the details necessarily, but these are concepts that all come up in this conversation. So I just want to let you know that is on the horizon. How is it going out there? How is your world? How is your life? How are you feeling? What's happening? Let us know. Tell us how it's all going. Let us know how you're feeling. Let us know what you're thinking. We are on Twitter.com. Who knows for how long? It's bad over there. We are on Instagram at YouAreGoodPod. We are on Blue Sky, where we're increasingly becoming better at uh, posting over there. It feels like Twitter from 2009 for right now. Find us there if you will and can. And uh, you can, of course, find us on Patreon. We will have more information about that, but that's how people support the show. But find us in those places. I'm also increasingly posting clips of the show over on my TikTok, uh, Alex Steed. You can find me there. So find us in those various places. Let us know what's going on. And don't forget that you, my friend, are good. You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies is made possible with and by your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple podcast subscriptions. We appreciate you. You help make this thing possible. Without you, this is impossible. And we appreciate you. And in exchange, you get bonus episodes. All right, not a whole lot more to report for the time being. Let's get into this episode about uh, broadcast news with our great friend, Paul Saborin. Alex. Yes, Sarah. I'll never get out of South Boston and you're going to see the whole <laughs> damn world. <laughs> but look at the bright side. You'll make $19,000. <laughs> <Huh>. Not bad. <laughs> this is my favorite movie about a guy from Southie. Sarah Marshall, how are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> 
Alex, I'm so happy because we are talking today about Broadcast News, which is truly one of my favorite movies and a movie that is like engraved on my brain because I have been watching it since I was 14. <laughs> Sarah facts again. Once every few episodes, we get a fact about Sarah Marshall that just makes the most sense. And that is one. <laughs> Yes. What, what's another one? Uh, apples for snacks. Not just apples of snacks, which is fairly normal, but coming home with a full bag of Halloween candy and one apple and eating the apple. Yeah, 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 yeah. Big time. Sick behavior. Sicko. You're a sicko. I'm a sicky. <laughs> a sicky. What is sick? What is sicky from? Remind me. <sighs> this is what Gene Siskel says that movies he thinks are morally objectionable are yeah. for sickies, <laughs> but not broadcast news. And we are talking today. With Paul Saborin, whose voice I heard every day for a week while I staggered into the bathroom because you were the captain of our love boat. <laughs> I will not explain further. Fair enough. I will refuse to give any further context to that statement. Paul, who are you and what, and what do you do and what is the love boat and why are you here? Who am I? Uh, I'm Paul Saborin. I, I do many things. I'm a jack of multiple trades. In no particular order, I am a member of music duo Paul and Storm and have been for years and years. Woo! I am one of the co-founders and people who run uh, an annual music and comedy and creativity themed event cruise called Joko Cruise, uh, along with Jonathan Calton, the Joko uh, it is named after, yeah. uh, which has been running since 2011, and that is the love boat to which has been referred. Uh, I am also a writer. I uh, have done writing with my partner Storm, a lot of the music writing for the last three seasons of Mystery Science Theater 3000. I am a live podcast tour manager uh, for the McElroy family who do a number of podcasts that are mm. not this podcast, so the hell with them. <laughs> And I'm a first-time, uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. I am so excited to be here. Me too. And this is such a perfect movie, I feel like, for you to bring to us. It is. I do have to say, uh, so we all met collectively on the aforementioned Joko Cruise Love mm -hmm. Boat event, and you jumped right into the spirit of things. There is video out there for those who would like to see Sarah doing an absolutely killer karaoke rendition of diamonds are forever she did which is when we all fell in love with you that much more sarah i would love to be casual about this but i left a quart of blood out on that <laughs> stage and it meant so much to me to do that in front of an appreciative group of colleagues and drunk kinky nerds which is what this cruise is all about and those are my people I cannot believe that we have not used that logline for our event because it is more <laughs> succinct and accurate than just about anything we've ever done in 13 years. And what a great way to come back because broadcast news is about nothing if not oh a group God. of highly focused individuals <laughs> all sharing a very small space yeah. <laughs> that they cannot leave. <laughs> and who are all kind of kinky and horny. Mm -hmm. Especially that Jennifer. Yeah, Jennifer is ready. Uh, mm -hmm. What appealed to you, Sarah Marshall, as a youngin in broadcast news? Boy, do I have an answer for you. I feel like I think about this a lot. So like when I was like 12, I got very into Woody Allen movies because that's the appropriate age to be into those movies. Let's be real. <laughs> 12 to 20. And then after that, you're too old. <laughs> because Woody Allen really, you know, there's a lot of adolescent viewpoint there. A lot of it is based on thinking you're the only like clever, smart person in the world. 
and that all of your exes are simply unreasonable. (laughs) (laughs) But I was also drawn to this aesthetic of like, that was my first sense culturally of like New York. And I kind of loved this idea that I still find equally alluring and terrifying of any kind of like pressure cooker situation full of adults who talk in unnecessarily long sentences. And then at the same age, Comedy Central started airing reruns of uh, Aaron Sorkin's, I would not say failed exactly, but certainly not as successful as one would have hoped for it to be, show Sports Night. Underappreciated, shall we say. Yeah, and Sports Night was a show I loved because it felt like it was about this like intense work environment. And this is an interesting element of 90s culture and TV to analyze because moving forward, like a lot of TV that I loved and that America loved was about workplace families. And the idea of a workplace as a family is specifically an argument frequently used to prevent people from unionizing, (laughs) (laughs) which is also what the 90s were all about. I love shows about like New York media and also intense workplaces and places where like people who made literary illusions all the time were like trying to have sex with each other. <laughs> and so when I first saw broadcast news, when I think AMC started running in a bunch when I was 14, I was like, this show's perfect. And specifically, it's also a rom-com about an incredibly tightly wound woman who corrects everyone all the time <laughs> and who has two attractive guys fighting over her. And I was like, oh, this gives me hope. <laughs> Paul, before Sarah walks us through what Broadcast News is about, what is your relationship with this movie and why did you bring it to us? Uh, It was kind of the same as Sarah described it, except I was 17 and I was at college and I was similarly whatever the 17 year old version of precocious is. I was always the kid who liked to hang out and talk with the parents at parties because I wasn't good at interacting mm-hmm. with people my own age. Yeah, of course. You're like, I'm choosing to talk to you about policy right now. It's yeah, I, exactly. I simply do not want to spend time with my peers. That's right. Yeah. Who wants to go watch The <laughs> Breakfast Club for the sixth time? <laughs> I would like to discuss James Watt. Um, so I was, I was uh, new to college and wanted to prove to myself how sophisticated and urbane I was. And so I was very drawn to all this same kind of media and a movie like broadcast news seemed sort of tailor made for my tastes and my overeducated style, my MO. And I, you know, this movie speaks very interestingly and in different ways. I found when you are 20 versus when you are 40 or 50. Yeah. This is a movie I appreciated for like the craft. It's a James L. Brooks movie. It's so well written. Like I got it. But like watching this at 40, I was like, holy shit, this fucking movie. Like rude of him to (laughs) put so many of my worst tendencies on on screen. Yeah. Okay, well, let's let's dive in, Sarah. Yes. What's broadcast news about? Okay. Broadcast news is not that different from Pretty in Pink because it is about a woman who has to choose between two, in many ways, interesting and attractive, but ultimately completely unusable love interests. (laughs) Beautiful. And it's about a woman we love who's like pretty tightly wound and the two men who are in love with her. And one of them is like her best friend who she doesn't really feel attracted to and who's mad about it. And the other one is like this guy she really likes, but who represents everything she's against philosophically. They really are very similar. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, you see these vignettes of them as children, which are are fine. But like, really, when you first mm. see Holly Hunter, there are like two kinds of people. There's my people and there's not my people. Yep. And the my peoples are when you first see Holly Hunter, like speed walking in this movie. If you don't think that's like one of the funniest scenes ever recorded based on sort of like low key, but hilarious physical humor explaining her character. If you don't get that, we're not on the same page. <laughs> the movie tells you everything you need to know about the 80s and also the characters involved that she's speed walking and she is in Omaha, Nebraska and she is stopping to pick up every newspaper at these little <laughs> newspaper kiosks and the fact that there are I think five or six different Omaha, Nebraska <laughs> newspapers. It is such a little time capsule that just broke a little piece off my heart when I saw that. I know. Those news things that she has that she's getting her newspapers from in LA are just strictly now for being set on fire. Like every yeah. time I go on a walk, <laughs> right. there's a former newspaper container just like on fire or melted. So yeah, that's where we're at now. We're we're really straight up in the Mad Max version of this universe. <laughs> Yeah, yes, I think Mad Max probably had it pretty right. And like, huh. yeah, it also says everything about the 80s that women couldn't just walk. They had to power walk. Yeah, you alluded to it before. My wife and I used to always joke around. There was a, a, a brand of media uh, like this movie and Sports Night and others that always invo- involved some sort of hyper-competent woman mm-hmm. stridently saying out loud, I love my job. I'm great at my job. Yes. And I love these characters. And I also think there's something a little bit nefarious Mm -hmm. about our cultural reliance on women who are like great at business, great at work, but therefore too aggressive to keep a man (laughs) and they can't cook and their home life is a nightmare. Can't have it all, ladies. Right. And it's like women are actually often successful in business because of our social skills. (laughs) So broadcast news opens with its three main characters as kids and the child is the parent of the adult kind of thing. And so we see young William Hurt being like, Dad, I need a tutor. My grades are bad and I want to do better. And everyone says I'm cute, but I think I'm dumb. And what job can I have just by being attractive? And then it freeze frames and it says future network news anchor. (laughs) And that really sets the tone. (laughs) James L. Brooks setting the subtlety hammer to super heavy. It's great. I also, you can see some Simpsons DNA in this for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, Jane, our main character played by Holly Hunter, is not that far from Lisa Simpson in so many ways. For sure. Wow. I never thought of that before. Yeah, this is like live. It's like live action in some pieces. It's uh, obviously there's a lot of like real touching moments, but like those bits of humor are like live action Simpson bits, which is great. (laughs) I mean, those this movie and that show were developing at the same time. I mean, Simpsons as a show came out in 87, I believe. So yeah, not, not a huge surprise that there's a lot of shared DNA. So broadcast news, we have young Albert Brooks, who is graduating from his high school class early. He's 15. I think he gives a speech about how everyone made his life hell. And he graduated as fast as he possibly could cut to him getting beaten up by bullies. And he gives his speech. He's like, take your last licks, but I'm going to tell you something that'll scar you for life. You'll never make more than $19,000 a year. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> it looks like he's broken a tooth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then a great, like, very James L. Brooksy 
button on it as the the bullies finish beating him up and walk away. And one of them's like, 19,000? That sounds pretty good. <laughs> and then we go to young Jane, who was played by, I don't know her actress, but a child actress who also played Mary Lennox in a production of The uh, Secret Garden around this time, huh. which is a very important piece of girl media. <laughs> I like to think that Frances Hawkson Burnett was sitting there in her chair one day thinking, what do little girls love? Secrets. <laughs> what else do they love? Gardens. <laughs> Jenny James, I'm looking it up. Jenny James is the actress. Jenny James. She's so great. And Paul, I would love for you to describe her segment if you would like to. It's so delightful. <laughs> oh, gosh. I So she is typing furiously away on... It's a fan. I cannot remember who it's to. It's it's, like, it's a fan letter. It's a response. She's no. She's got two more pen pals before she can go to bed. Pen pals. That was it. Okay. Yeah. Because she, she was writing a response to a response to her previous letter, and she is being sort of obsessive about her language and stopping and rewording. And of course, she's reading it aloud as movies do, as she types. And her father comes in and tries to tell her to go to bed, and she insists angrily. Uh, she has two more pen pals to finish and sort of dismisses him. And he says he's worried that uh, she's going to get obsessive about this. She stops a moment and then goes out into the room and proceeds to lecture him about specificity of language and that words have meaning and to call someone obsessive is a psychological term and you really need to consider your word choices. It's a real good sort of very James L. Brooksy two minute run of a pint sized version of uh, Holly Hunter. It's beautiful. Yeah. And she, it's and we, it, we get, it's all these segments do a great job of communicating where these characters are coming from. And it feels like Holly Hunter's parents are either divorced or she just has a single dad situation because there's a portrait of her and her dad yep. in the living room. There's no mom. This is normally your mom is the one who tells you to go to bed when you're writing. And we're in Atlanta. So they're pin pals. <laughs> and you can see she's growing up in a household where she's like, Maybe treat it as like a, a kind of a little adult in some ways. One of, the, one of the things I appreciate about this movie and movies like it is that so many other lesser films would have absolutely hung a hat on that and would have had the dad say something like, well, you know, since your mother passed on, it's just you and me here. And I know you're smarter than all the other kids, but that doesn't give you the right to be mean to them. And so, and it just yeah. sort of, it's all mostly sub i mean you know it's not that subtle but it's still subtext and and you get what you need about the characters without ever having everything just sort of explained to you in very explicit terms yeah so we meet them as kids it's a five minute opening sequence it's really great and then we go into holly hunter she's on assignment in omaha she's power walking she gets 100 newspapers <laughs> she goes and calls albert brooks to prep and this is where we meet grown-up Albert Brooks, who was introduced to us, and he's like, you got to turn on your TV. Arnold Schwarzenegger is on the Today Show and Good Morning America and a third thing, and I think he's live on two of them. <laughs> and then he's like, see you in the lobbies, and you're like, mm, Albert Brooks, can't go wrong there, or can you? <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> yeah. And so she's a news producer, and he's, basically, he reports stories, like, from where they're happening, but he doesn't anchor because... We learn basically that the network won't let him anchor because they don't think he's telegenic enough, which I think arguably is a way of being anti-Semitic. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, we don't know yet because he hasn't been tried that it's because of his inability to be a yeah. anchor. Also, like, I think, yes, you're right. Like, Albert Brooks looks like Albert Brooks and being like, this guy is not telegenic is saying something in the subtext. But also mm-hmm. we learn about his character that he is alert. And I, fuck, this resonates so hard. He, in his formative professional years, is allergic to kissing ass. Mm-hmm. Or even just being polite like in sort of group settings and I think that maybe that has not helped him up to this point either right so those are our characters they're reporting on a story where Albert Brooks is interviewing I forget what this guy is doing but he is like some kind of I think has been sent on like shady U.S. military business yeah right abroad and he's returning home just kind of on a bus and he doesn't want to be broadcast so he's like shit piss fuck motherfucker or something (laughs) But they get the tape, and then there's a conference that Holly Hunter is going to present at. And so she has this speech that basically is about, like, this movie is very prescient, and she's talking about all the issues that it's going to end up being about in the long run. It's rehashing a lot of the stuff that the, the Fumi Network did 10 years prior. Yes. Sure. About sort of the death and commodification of television news. Totally. Right. And it's like, and it's, you know... <sighs> The same thing that a lot of good and bad Aaron Sorkin material is about and this idea of like the media seems to be getting worse. It seems to be getting more bought out and commercialized and we're prioritizing flesh over accuracy. And, you know, certainly we've continued to move in that direction, I would say. Like, I don't think that people are getting worse, but that we technology gives us a bigger canvas to paint on. Oh God, I re- I just read Naomi Klein's book, Doppelganger, which I can't recommend enough to anyone who cares about I gotta how read that. you, oh God, Sarah, I can't wait until you read it. Holy shit. Is it an audiobook? Yeah, I'm, yeah, totally. I can't read. <laughs> Me either. We can't read, you guys. Why can't Sarah read? Why can't Tara read? I'm, <laughs> hey! My favorite action actually has been every time one of our friends is mentioned in Doppelganger, texting them and being like, Hey, you're right. Carmen is mentioned in it. Eric Garcia is mentioned in it. And being like, hey, you're wow. in this. You probably already know that. And they're like, no, I don't. Thank you for letting me know. Amazing. Right. There's too much to read. There is too much to read. But anyway, the, I'm reading it and it's about the state of media at this moment. And Paul, you bringing up network, which is like, this is how it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Broadcast news being like, this is what we're starting to see in reality. This is what it's doing. And then reading now kind of essentially a postmortem of all of that. I, oh God, I love Love that this movie made a comedy out of being like, here's how the media is failing. It's doing a great job. But if you want to catch up on where broadcast news left off, please read Naomi Klein's Doppelganger. It's so great. And this is about how everyone thinks she's Naomi Wolf and how Naomi Wolf lost her mind. Yes, yeah. exactly. And what yeah. media forces play into that and what political forces, etc. It's a it's a great I consistently feel like I'm still stuck a little bit in the narrative reality that pre-existed when everyone went nuts Mm -hmm. and so so i don't always have the footing i need to understand what's happening now because i'm still a little naive from having grown up in the 80s and 90s yes and she does a really good job of being like me too let's figure out where we need to be now to understand this moment yeah and i guess like the simplest way to put it is that in the 80s and 90s the news basically still was however you got it a fairly dispassionate list of what happened today. Yes. And there was a lot of bias involved, both in how it was reported and described and what was selected. But it was trying to do that, basically. (laughs) Right, right. right. And plus, you only had three to four sources for it. 
Yeah, we had three and then Fox showed up and it was like, oh my God, there's four. This is unprecedented. (laughs) And then PBS. So yeah, um, Holly Hunter is giving a talk at this conference about what's coming in the future and being a big downer. And she is giving a talk to an audience of like, a lot of people who seem to be there in this in, in the industry because of their telegenic nature, not because they're like, I too am worried about the encroachment of rampant commercialism on my industry. And so people are walking out, they're like not hearing it. That scene is so brilliant too, knowing the place that like TikTok eventually plays and understanding the news is that she shows this piece of tape, everyone's already over it. And she shows a piece of tape to captivate them. She shows it because she's like, here is my illustration of the problem. Right. Yeah. Here's what ran on all three networks last night. Yeah. On the same night as like nuclear disarmament talks not being covered. And what ran is a tremendous visual of like a synchronized like dominoes going off uh, and like (laughs) creating sort of like this like whole artistic, whatever it looks, it's captivating to watch undoubtedly. And it's like the only part of her speech that everyone likes is being able to watch (laughs) that, watch that video. And she says, and it's, this is like the, to me, the most like prescient line in the whole movie. I know it's good film. I know it's fun. I like fun. It's just not news. You're lucky mm-hmm. you love it because you're about to get a whole lot more of it. Yes. Yep. And then we did. And it's like, oh, fuck, Holly. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> We're about to get a whole president about it. Um. <laughs> well, and as I was saying to you, Alex, this morning, like I've watched this movie many times in my life, but I have never watched it after having spent several months researching the Reagan administration. (laughs) And what's now very clear to me is that Tom, William Hurt's character, is Ronald Reagan. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And the only difference is Tom is for the first three minutes of the movie aware of his limitations and trying to figure out how to get beyond them. But the rest of the movie, and you I mean, you know much more about Reagan. You could probably speak to if that even is a difference. Hmm. But the rest of the movie is him leaning into the limitations and understanding how best to exploit them, which I love. Oh, that is the Reagan administration, Great. for sure. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, yeah. the genius of Ronald Reagan is saying, and I can't, I have to do an impression. When you get these opportunities, you take them. <laughs> I know that I don't understand what I'm doing and I just look at the camera in a way people like, but let's do it. I want to go to the ball with Lady Di. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah, he says that really tremendous line later when he's explaining to Albert Brooks about like how to read the news that you're trying to both like read it and punch it up and convey, trust me, I'm credible, which I felt like was like the most, the most Reagan-y line. Especially the fact that he says you're, you're you're selling an idea. You're selling the idea. Trust me. (laughs) Yes. So they're at the conference. Nobody cares for Holly Hunter's message. They love the dominoes, but they, and as, as, as she says, like, you're lucky you like it. You're going to get a lot more of it. You can hear one woman in the background say, Good. (laughs) (laughs) And the only person who liked Holly Hunter's speech is William Hurt. And he's like, that was so great. I loved your speech. You really reached me. And she's like, oh, you're sexy. And so they're talking about the fate of the industry. And then she's like, let's go to my room and talk about the fate of the industry. Oh, yeah. And he's like, listen, I really need to get off my chest 
the fact that I have like risen above the level of my own competence. I was doing sports for a local station and then there was a rumor that I was going to get fired and everyone wrote in so many letters that they made me the anchor. And you know, I keep getting promoted to positions I'm not comfortable with, but I am still sending tapes around to try and get a better job. But I don't understand a lot of the news I'm reporting on. And she's like, well, you know, it's normal to feel insecure. And he's like, no, I like really don't understand what I'm doing. And then she like gets pissed. And it's this amazingly played scene. I mean, Alex, will you tell us about what happens here? Is this the scene where he ultimately reveals to her that the reason why he approached her is Mm -hmm. because he's been hired by her company and they're going to be working together? Yes. Which I think is like, you know, he really buried the lead intentionally. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) She's not raising her voice when she talks to him in this scene, but at the same time, you can like hear the amount of like, I think, fury at what he is and what he represents that she really feels where she's like, look, like no one is strapping you to the fast track. Like if you're upset about not understanding the news, then like learn how to understand the news. And she has been trying to have sex with him and then was distracted by her sense of ethics, which is also going to be a theme. (laughs) And so he leaves and he's like, you know, I hated the way you talked to me just now. And not just because you were right. And then he leaves and he calls her a few minutes later and he's like, by the way, I'm going to be working at your station. Okay, bye. (laughs) And so then we see her and Albert Brooks walking in. We're kind of getting the sense already that Albert Brooks is into her and that she kind of has the material to know. But she's like, "Uh whatever. That's my read. Yeah, the, it's. I mean, and the interesting thing that we get in the two of them about her and Albert Brooks is like, they both have the same ideals and they both have the same sort of intellectual purity about their job and how they go about it and ethics to the point where like she tried, there's the great scene where they're shooting in Nicaragua and like it appears that the crew might be framing a scene outside of it being natural and she intervenes and she's like, no, just do what you're normally going to do. And the guy just does Mm -hmm. what he was doing anyway. Like Mm -hmm. they are purists. They sort of like believe in the job, whatever. But Albert Brooks has the advantage of it not being on the table for him to fuck William Hurt. Not as far as he knows, yeah. Not as far as he knows. He's able to maintain the purity by way of that yeah. not being an option for him. Well, and William Hurt is his love rival, so like, right. that's his lens as well. And Holly yeah. Hunter has to figure out the balance of where your ethics are and then very understandably taking William Hurt's spotty biography off the table, just looking at him as a specimen, she has the opportunity to fuck William Hurt. So like things are complicated by way of (laughs) maintaining Mm -hmm. morals and then just wanting to have a nice time with this man. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into it, but Albert Brooks was certainly for me, because of the age I was, he was kind of the proto representation of the friend zoned man. Yes. <laughs> and all of the sense of entitlement and bitterness that comes with it. Yeah. He's, he's a little incelly sometimes. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. He is. And that is like the thing that my viewpoint of this movie has changed the most about as yeah. I've grown up. Thank God. So yeah, everybody's back in Washington. William Hurt puts on his little suit and goes for his first day of work. And he gets to see the very thrilling scene of Holly Hunter deciding at the last second that they need to like, with the film that Albert Brooks has shot of him talking to the returning soldier, they're going to fade into Norman Rockwell painting from a book they have in the office that like is going to, I don't know, 
bring out the themes. That just happens to be compositionally and thematically matching and appropriate. Don't you love when that happens? Like she, gets, she has to go the extra mile. She has to write to get two more pen pals. And so this creates the iconic scene where Joan Cusack has to run the tape to the area where you have to get, I don't know any of the terms for this, but the place where you give it to the people who stick it into the VCR so that the next segment can play on the news. And like, can we get, let's just appreciate, let's appreciate Joan Cusack here. Oh, please. If I were in The Good Son and I had Joan and John Cusack hanging from each arm, I would let John Cusack go. (laughs) Easily. (laughs) 10 out of 10. (laughs) No doubt. I love John. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's no knock on John. However. Joan's so great in this. I've had a lot of friends as I was growing up who compared me to Joan Cusack, which growing up feeling very self-conscious, I was like, no, I don't want to be compared to the thing that I am. I want to be the opposite of that. But like now, of course, I realize that's the biggest compliment you can get. And it's like, very nice. her abilities as a physical comedian are, are so amazing here. Because like the way that she runs... She's like a puppet. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fun to see the news being made. Yes. As we'll learn later, it's hot. There's like, you see how the tape transitions work. You see people have mm-hmm. to run stuff. You see there's earpieces of people. Like spe- it's like a restaurant. It's like they're yeah. working in a restaurant. It really has the bear vibe. Yep. Like it has the same <laughs> vibe as like the kitchen and the, like there's yelling. If anyone today acted the way that Holly Hunter does when she's producing a segment mm-hmm. and someone got it on TikTok, that person would be canceled and fired like it's just a different time and you're seeing Mm -hmm. it happen and it's like a really fun place to spend a little bit of time yeah yeah and so it all works out they air the segment and importantly the uh national news anchor jack nicholson loves it and what's (laughs) fun about jack nicholson in this movie is that we he shows up in person at the end but throughout we basically just see him on a monitor (laughs) yeah it's great (laughs) so funny and everyone is trying to curry his favor because he's like the king and Albert Brooks is trying to curry his favor and simply cannot. Mm. So he calls to congratulate Holly Hunter. And she's like, Albert Brooks also did it. And he's like, whatever, goodbye. <laughs> so that's going to go well. Oh my God. <laughs> and so William Hurt, many times throughout this movie, including now, like makes an open overture for Holly Hunter. And she's like, no, thank you. And so now he's like, can I take you out for dinner? Can you help me? Can you talk to me about the news? And she's like, no, Aaron and I are going to Central America on Wednesday. This is where we get the the scene where Holly Hunter is very upset at the idea of someone possibly maybe staging the news. And then Aaron, who is Albert Brooks, is reporting on basically the Contras skirmishing with the Sandinistas, which again connects to the Reagan administration, because of course, these are the Contras in Iran-Contra. Right. Yeah. Everything that's happening. I mean, from from what's going on in the actual news to just like corporate consolidation and mass layoffs as a result, we have Ronnie's stamp on everything. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, Aaron is speaking fluent Spanish with the insurgents and, you know, they're just establishing his authenticity and bona fides every chance they get. It's like, yeah, it's great. He's like, he's just demonstrating skill the whole time. He manages to do news cadence while almost getting shot. And then he's like, I just risked my life for a network that tests my face with focus groups. (laughs) And you can tell that this is like a moment where he's like, please kiss me right now. And Holly Hunter's like, no, not kissing you over here. Thank you. Because that's, you know, he's got a big adrenaline surge. You're like, yeah. Yeah. Their collective play. I don't know so much about Tom. 
because I feel like Tom's a golden child. He can he's blessed in all of these mm. very frustrating ways. But you know, Hunter and Brooks, their issue is they're primarily dedicated to their work and their craft. Mm-hmm. They're obsessed with this career choice, and as a result, your dating pool is just the people within your career, and that is absolutely a messy time and no wonder she goes and cries for large portions of the day because it's like albert brooks maybe tom maybe that guy who looks like 80s philip seymour hoffman maybe yeah Yeah, bobby she's got the scully problem she's become too fabulous for the men around her to know what to do with amen yeah and so kind of the the middle part of this movie the meat of it is like william hurt obviously continues to fail upward he's very successful uh, Holly Hunter is attracted to him, but she's like, he's, I don't know, he's also dumb and he stands for everything I don't believe in, but I like him and he gives me the feelings, but I'm mad at him all the time and I think he's dumb. <sighs> and also Lois Childs works at this news station who is a honest to God Bond girl. She was in Moonraker yep. for heaven's sakes. <laughs> and so Lois Childs is like, could, this is weird, but like, could I date Tom or is anything going on there? And Holly Hunter is like, yeah, no, I don't know. Give me a second. And she goes and talks to Tom because they're at a, a work function, a daytime work function. Holy hell. And she's like, hi. And he's like, hi, good to see you. You look so clean and pretty. And she's like, what? And he's like, well, at the office, you always have this film over you. <laughs> he's like, okay, bye. <laughs> and it's like, Lois Childs, go have sex with him. Oh have sex God. with him now. <laughs> what, a, what a silly baby he is. <laughs> and it's like, Tom, you're 35. Like, have you not had to develop any game because you're just so good looking? Women sleep with you no matter what you say to them. Is that it? Yeah, he's, he's John Hammond, 30 Rock. <laughs> oh, he is. He's a sex idiot. Or John Hamm. Yeah. Period. Mm. Ooh, we're getting political. Ooh. <laughs> and at this very party, it also turns out that there's a breaking news emergency because, like, a Libyan fighter pilot has bombed an American embassy in Sicily or something like that. Again, this is all like based on real tensions within foreign policy that people were, you know, losing sleep over during this period, roughly. And so in maybe the most iconic moment in this movie, I would say at this point, Holly Hunter is like, listen, I know you want to give William Hurt this breaking news, like emergency weekend anchor assignment job, but I don't think you should. I think you should let Albert Brooks do it. He knows what he's talking about. He has background in this. Let him do it. And her boss is like, it must be nice to always think you're best, to always know you're the smartest person in the room. And she's like, no. It's awful. (laughs) And many insufferable young ladies quoted that line from then on, including myself many times. But it is awful. (laughs) I really appreciate what that scene does because in a way they're both right. And I don't, and I'm not saying he's he's right for being like, because like that guy's just eternally wrong the whole time. Mm -hmm. But like it does this interesting thing where she has this compulsion that must be it's sometimes insufferable to be around. And sometimes it is handy to speak to that, to be like, maybe there's another way to go about this. So like there is a satisfying thing where like a guy finally says, it must be nice to think that you're right all the time. And 
her receipt of that is really great because like nobody's particularly likable in the scene. Mm-hmm. James L. Brooks is saying like people like me are ultimately right in the long run. That's how it pays off. But he doesn't necessarily make the people who are right likable in the moments that they are right. Yes. Yeah. That's the difference between this and the newsroom. Yes, yes. Yeah. That to me is like the genius of this movie is like mm-hmm. people are right in real time and they are not likable while they're being right. And I can't yes. think of a realer reality than that. Yeah. Part of my own journey with this movie over the decades was fixing in my own mind who I thought, if any of them, were the protagonist and or likable character. <laughs> sort of I mean Holly Hunter is obviously the main character and it, the story revolves around her and her experience but also and, and I actually I, I was reading a quote from James L Brooks like when he first was developing the script he realized he didn't like any of his three main characters hmm. mm-hmm. and supposedly he came around on it and my viewpoint on this last viewing is really <laughs> I mean I find them interesting and enjoyable to watch but I don't know that any of the three of them I find particularly likable. There was a while when I was younger where I thought the Albert Brooks character was the, you know, his righteousness. And I, you know, like, I, I got him, you know, I understand him and he's so pissed because he's been betrayed. And this mm-hmm. woman that he cares for seems to be going to the dark side. And then I grew up a little bit and I'm jumping the gun a little bit when, but when you see the, the various scenes towards the latter half of the film where he is taking her to task over her her willing to bend her ethics so to speak in order to care for this man and also just to unload on her for liking the William Hurt character is you know it's it's unfair and it's bitter and he's making taking some real cheap shots he seems almost happy about it and as you were saying before Mm -hmm. it's almost incel like in, in his resentment towards this woman because she won't love him the way he does and feels like he deserves to be loved by her like he's earned his spot and why doesn't she love him back and and he gets very recriminatory if that's a word about it all and i do not you know i like i still i love the movie and i still very much enjoy watching it but i came away especially from this last watch thinking wow these are three pretty unpleasant people a thing that I have come to appreciate maybe more through like putting the show together from just the the media I gravitate towards is I find that the Venn diagram between is the person likable and is this a person who I would get along with is not always the same. And like, these are all people that I think not, these are all people. I think certainly Holly Hunter and Albert Brooks characters are like my people. They are people I would get along with. Mm -hmm. They are not always likable or easy to deal with and that makes them especially so many people yeah (laughs) well and what's likability too and you know that depends on kind of i guess the the needs of the story Mm. in some ways and then you know there's the fact that tom is like one of his problems is that likability is what he knows how to do yeah yeah and and also like i think tom does have some points in this as well and um We'll talk about it more as, as we continue. But so, yeah, the kind of meet the, the central act of this is that Tom is doing the emergency weekend anchor thing. They go with him. They're like, go home, Albert Brooks. <laughs> and so Holly Hunter is the producer for this whole breaking news update. And so she is in Tom's ear, prompting him, telling him what to say. And Albert Brooks is in one of my favorite parts of this movie like drinking at home out of a big snifter, singing along to Midnight Train to Georgia. <laughs> yeah. As we all have done. I can sing as I read. 
And he's calling into the station, feeding Holly Hunter information, which she then is feeding into Tom's earpiece. So Albert Brooks is like, I say it here, it comes out there. (laughs) And this is like the central bonding event between Holly Hunter and William Hurt, because afterwards he's like ecstatic and he comes in and he's like, that was like really great sex. (laughs) And then the kind of love plot between them starts happening. They go out on some dates. They go to an embassy. Although first he does go out with Lois Childs, but then Holly Hunter gets her reassigned to cover an Alaskan serial killer, so Tom's (laughs) available again. Yay. So Holly Hunter and William Hurt are kind of starting, you know, it's like that thing when you know your Sims are vibing. That's what they're doing. (laughs) And meanwhile, we're also hearing rumblings of gigantic budget cuts coming. I think they're trying to cut like $27 million. And we have Holly Hunter and... William Hurt going on a great like embassy soiree date and then she's like well I'm gonna stop by Albert Brooks's house afterwards incredibly and she's like how was it and he's like well I almost drowned (laughs) because he did an amazing job verbally but was shifty and looked like Nixon (laughs) and they have people rushing into try and dry his incredible amounts of sweat like with hair dryers (laughs) this scene is iconic it's like i think the scene that like probably like most people remember if they haven't seen for a long time and it's Mm. like again the best presentation of like group physical comedy without it feeling like necessarily it it doesn't quite get into three stooges territory but it is it's a waltz you know, it's like an incredibly choreographed scene. The timing of the set piece is just so phenomenal. So just stem good. to stern. It's so well constructed. Yeah. And so he uh, has his, he's testing out for Anchor. And then he's like, well, I did so terribly at that, that it was freeing in a way. And he's like, I'm so happy you're here visiting me at my house in your formal wear. I'm going to make you tequila and eggs. And she's like, let's not because I'm falling in love with William Hurt. And then he gets really mad at her, which is kind of the moment that kind of coming back to this later on, I was like, oh, I I don't think that this is in bounds. And I used to think that. He says things in a scary way. Yeah. He says yeah. things in ways that I believe I have said when I w- felt like I was righteous and angry and I was allowed. And, mm-hmm. I, and it sucks. It sucks. Yeah. Because he does it and then he immediately realizes he does it. And this is the like scary like stuff you recognize from your childhood sort of situation. Is then yeah. he's like, oh, sit down. Don't worry about it. Sit down. It's fine. And you're like, oh, no. And he says, he later says like one other like mean and cutting thing about what their future is going to be like. And he, yeah. when he feels entitled by feeling like the people he loves are not seeing how great he truly believes he is. Yeah. He gets mean. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to, to step on the scene. I I, I do mm. want to bring up though, at some point the date rape coverage scene, because that oh, becomes yeah. important later. Yes. Well, Alex, why don't you talk about that? Because the, the way that whole thing unfolds is fascinating. So Tom does start reporting. He's given the chance to do so. We have that really tremendous scene where we see that everyone produces the uh, scene well together. He proves that he can do the thing. Mm-hmm. And then we later see everyone in the newsroom gathered to watch a new piece that he has produced. 
and Holly Hunter was not a part, was not a producer on that. They're all just kind of watching it and giving their assessment. And it's remarkable for a lot of different reasons and it will play mm-hmm. into the plot later. But specifically, they are explaining, and I, this is hard for, I think, a lot of people to believe. It's hard for me to believe and I lived through the time, although albeit young, that like the concept of date rape acquaintance rape acquaintance rape thank you date rape was discovered in i think 1993 yeah i mean it was like a moderately new concept that rape wasn't exclusively a thing that happens violently by strangers on the street and i think that it was even my understanding based on time magazine studies and so forth is that like this was viewed as an exception still that it's like violent assault is normal but sometimes right it's someone you know isn't that crazy right exactly and so we have Tom reporting on that. He's talking with someone who survived one of these situations. She's explaining it. She's crying. We get a cutaway scene of him crying and responding. We go back Mm -hmm. and everyone is so moved by how sort of like beautifully crafted the reporting is. Albert Brooks walks into it and is kind of like belligerently publicly and audibly rolling his eyes about Mm -hmm. how the scene is crafted. And For a minute, it feels like he's being shitty about like rape being covered in some way. And like, really, Mm -hmm. he's being shitty about feeling like something is off about the way that this thing is being reported. Tom asks Holly Hunter what her take Mm -hmm. is on it. And she explains that all of his decisions, like the cutaway to him crying, are not decisions she would make, but they were effective and it was surprising, whatever. But we're seeing his evolution of someone who's given more agency and authority as being a person who reports within this organization and what he is making as a result. And this will come back later. Mm -hmm. And he, as mainstream media did in the eighties and nineties, and in many ways continues to do is looking at something about rape and describing it as something about sex. Yes, totally. And that's what the movie is doing because it also has her say it as well, which is a really fascinating, it's clumsy in ways. And it's, it's certainly the beginning of a conversation, but he, you know, and and then again, like the movie does an interesting thing with regard to explaining kind of what's happening with acquaintance rape with date rape is saying it is this, this thing that's extremely recognizable to what we are still seeing, which is it's this area in which like police aren't dealing with it accordingly. People are scared to come forward because of repercussions, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it, there are elements of that scene and what they are portraying that feel as fresh today as probably it did when it came out. But yes, to your point, there is this conflation that Albert Brooks's character has where he's just saying like, this is like sex trying to sell the news. Yeah, we got incel Albert Brooks here. And then basically the final act is Holly Hunter wants to be with Tom the cutbacks are coming. Everybody's getting fired. Everyone is being blown in different directions. And she's like, I want to be with Tom. And Albert Brooks is like, you're going to be miserable and alone. And I'm moving to Portland, Oregon, where losers go. It's the same <laughs> premise as Hello, Larry. And he's like, well, before you go on your vacation with William Hurt, before the man I've described as the devil wins, do me one favor. Why don't you look at the tape from that date rape piece he did? Didn't he only have one camera? And she goes and looks at the tape and sees that basically he welled up and almost cried, but didn't while his interviewee was telling her story. And then he was like, yeah, put it on me. I can do it. I can cry. And then he kind of cried on command. And this is the line for her. 
And it makes me think because I kind of cry for a living. Um, I don't do it to myself on purpose, but it is part of my job. <laughs> and so she goes and watches the tape and she's like, I cannot go on vacation with you. Goodbye. And he's like, just come on vacation with me. It's only six days. You know, if we fight and drive each other crazy, then we'll know. And she's like, no, I can't do it. I have to go. And this is not the original ending. In the original ending, she did go with him. They end up in the cab together. He also is like kind of scarily angry in that cut scene in a way that makes you think about everything Marley Matlin said about her relationship yeah. with him. Yeah. And he's like, you drive me crazy. You drive me crazy. And then they start to kiss because that's romance, girls. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so they didn't go with that. And what they instead go with is flash forward. It's like seven years later. Albert Brooks is the king of Portland. William Hurt is marrying another hot news megafauna. And <laughs> Holly Hunter is hanging out with them both. She's like an auntie to Albert Brooks's little curly-headed boy. And she's going out with a new guy and they're water skiing. <laughs> and that's the end. And they're just pals. And as a teenager, I was like, I hate this ending. And as an adult, I'm like, I love this ending. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Why do you love it? Why do you both love this ending? Because both of these men were not good choices for her. And she chose neither of them. And that fucking never happens in movies. Perfect. Women in movies never say, I am enough. Goodbye. I'm going to go keep figuring my chaotic self out without either of you. Hell yeah. Although it is leavened a bit by the fact that she says she's chosen to take the job in New York as the managing editor for the national broadcast that he's going to be the anchor of now. Yeah. So there's a bit of a question mark there, but I never take it as like, well, they're going to end up in a relationship. I just more took it as she's doing what she can in a failing, you know, in a in the fight that she knows she's going to lose, but she's she's going to yeah. continue to sort of have at the wall. But you do what you can inside the machine, you know, or you throw bombs into the machine. Yeah. Either way, happy with both. It's nice to know that like being in professional media production, journalism production, et cetera, has just always been jumping on a decreasing amount of lily pads. Yeah. Or a lily pad that's like owned by a company that's like, <laughs> we really need you to use the word headless more often. <laughs> it's just been, you know, it's like, you're always like, well, if I could just work in the eighties when they had all this, it's just, it has been a sinking ship from the get-go. It was ever thus. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Oh my God. So why do we love this movie, everybody? Oh dear God. Uh, I mean, it's, complicated people who are still constantly funny which appealed to you know I, I liked to think that that was me when i was 17 18 19 20 like it was certainly sort of what i aspired to be was sort of a mm -hmm. james l brooks and or sorkin-y character mm. you, know, you grow out of it but certainly you know it hit me at just the right age when you want to do great things but you also want to be cool and interesting and you also want to end up with ball of fire, irresistible Holly Hunter. <laughs> and you also know that deep down you're unqualified and don't know what the hell you're doing. I think, I mean, this movie, I always have a good time with it. I always enjoy watching and I probably watch it once every couple years. It's a romantic comedy and that's just a satisfying kind of story template to be in. And then it's about something. Um, and then it's about kind of thinking about media and also being in this world of 80s analog media which to me has very powerful nostalgia and kind of thinking about the time when 
all of the forces that are operating in our world were there then, but like things, you know, were still like media was contained within physical objects, mm -hmm. which limited mm -hmm. us a lot, but also made the spread of misinformation slower. And that was really nice. You know, Sarah, this thing about me that I, because like one of my sisters, I think didn't exactly know what to get my father for Christmas. So got him a box set of a show he never watched his entire life, which was the tonight show. <laughs> and my father was just like, my father didn't like clever guys. Like he was like, I have no use for this. I don't like Johnny Carson. I don't like that. He's clever. I don't get it. It is hard to imagine your dad liking Johnny Carson. No, did not like that Johnny. smug little He prick. was a phone, a smug phony. Like that's a thing that yeah. my dad did not like but what a gift for me to have a box set of the best of the tonight show because i as a mm -hmm. kid would just like sit and watch albert brooks sketches and mm -hmm. or like whenever he was a guest he was so good he was so yeah. fucking good like for a kid in the 80s when the you know the comedies were sort of like these big broad comedies i became just like fixated on these people who had like a very specific sort of humor almost like a hallucinated version of like vaudeville. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so funny and it's so well crafted in ways that we would describe now as like prestige comedy while also nailing perfectly exactly the ways that you, the viewer, are fucked up. That makes you mm -hmm. feel at home and not assaulted <laughs> yeah. by having to sit with who and how you are. <laughs> Mm -hmm. We can get into this or not. I, I, I don't know how deep you want to go down the well of sort of trying to separate the artist from the art as far as sorry, William Hurt is concerned. Mm -hmm. But certainly in this movie, William Hurt is at his most, I think his most charismatic. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he was never an actor that exuded a ton of, shall we say, warmth. I guess so it's always kind mm -hmm. of a cold waspy mm -hmm. fish, but you know, in this movie, he is just firing on all charisma cylinders, and he's 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 a cod. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's a huggable cod. The thing he does so well is in in the roles where he stands out the most is being likable despite a big something. Yeah, I mean, it was such a great on Brooks's part to make him self-aware like i know i'm kind of a doofus mm -hmm. and i know i'm not mm -hmm. good at my job and i want to be better turns out i'm lazy and i don't want to do really the actual work but at least i'm you know i'm not trying to pretend i'm someone i'm not he, he explicitly says that line somewhere along the way mm -hmm. but that makes that character so much more winning i think than he could have been if he was just like this blithe clueless dope who just keeps failing up and it, it makes him in a way less frustrating, I guess. Yeah, and this is where I get into, like, doesn't Tom have a point? Because Aaron's whole thing, kind of as a lifelong thing, is like, most people are idiots who don't care about the truth, and you just have to, like, enjoy your superiority over them and the fact that you can sing as you read, I guess. And Tom's whole thing, kind of as a result of being able to be telegenic, I think implicitly is the idea of, like, if you have the tools to get people to see you as credible, regardless of how much you do or don't know, then like, isn't that worth using? Doesn't that mean that you are then at least capable of doing good? Yeah. yeah. And he's got, there's that whole tension, right? Where like, it's a fake tension where he's like, I don't know how to do it. And she's like, we'll learn how to do it. He's like, well, I really haven't had to. You yeah. Know? <laughs> right. He's like, I want to do a good job. And she's like, then do a good job. And he's like, but it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> the handsome man paradox again. It's funny. It's so, that shit is so real. 
Like that shit is so real where it's like, yeah, we all know at least one Tom where we're like, he just is gonna be fine no matter what. And like, doesn't have to exert a ton of, and not even just from a, like, I mean, obviously to your point, Sarah, like he is a handsome wasp who gets a job over Albert Brooks. Like there is certainly some choices being made from like, by way of like structural prejudices and biases, but we also just know, like, I know a handful of people where I'm like, no matter what this person does, for some reason, they will fail up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're like, mother, why? Why? (laughs) Because he looks good in a jacket. (laughs) And he punches one word per sentence. You got to punch. Business is so much about aesthetics, right? Washington is about aesthetics. Men won't admit how much of what they do is their own kind of drag. But, you know. I've said this on the show before, but like when I had the video production company I had with my business partner, my business partner at that time, community guy, soccer coach, kids, wedding ring, like all of these things that I think were important to people in like business transactions. Soccer coach, wedding (laughs) ring, (laughs) Belgians in the Congo. (laughs) It was a drag, like a a form of drag. And like when there was a thing where like you really needed to trust the company, we would send in the guy who was the most trust, like not like a guy who has a a fucking 40 year old man with a white beard and a Wu-Tang shirt talking about broadcast news for two hours with his friends. That's not a guy you trust with business. You trust (laughs) Mr. Man, this guy who has a wedding, you know, it is a drag and Tom has mastered the drag. Yeah. Yes. And again, like that's what Reagan did, right? Reagan mastered the drag. Reagan was in show business. He was our show business president. I don't even know if I call him the first, but he was maybe the first TV president. And the idea that, you know, that we had to contrast him to Carter and Mondale and then Dukakis, who were the Democratic challengers before and after his presidency. It's like in each of these cases, you have someone who like would be better for the country pretty unambiguously knows more would be better at policy better at economic policy like is a safer pair of hands but who can't communicate that he's a safer pair of hands and therefore it doesn't matter doesn't give you the warm fuzzies yeah yeah this movie is about like who you trust and why (laughs) (laughs) the struggle they're having here about what's happening to the news is like also what happened to country artists when cmt came out because like you were allowed to be ugly and tell complex stories before music videos were involved. (laughs) And then you got essentially what was called the like music video generation of country stars, which was like Garth Brooks, Clint Black, Reba McIntyre. You had Mm -hmm. like people who were extremely talented. No, no doubt about that, Mm -hmm. but they were selected because of how well they presented. Like you couldn't put fucking Merle Haggard's, you could now because people love authenticity, but you couldn't put his greasy pockmarked face on TV <laughs> when everyone was like Brooks and Dunn looking good in jeans. Yeah. And this comes up, Sarah, in conversations about history, about satanic panic and like just mm-hmm. what was happening with regard to how information was transmitted once mm-hmm. the image was as important as the substance of what was being reported was huge and shifted paradigms for everybody who had a foot in this arena. My question is, we know this is relevant. We know it predicted a lot of what happened, but like, what do we take from it now? If anything, as like advice that we find actionable, like does watching this movie, did it make you feel like, oh yeah, that reminds me of this like value that's important to me. Or were you just like, that was a fun ride. 
Well, I do think it's interesting as big a danger as they present the Tom character as. I thought it was interesting and important that he still actually cared about making good news. He wasn't any good at creating Mm -hmm. it, but it's not like, Mm -hmm. and again, I'm not sure the extent to which the movie is trying to present his story on date rape as fluff or not fluff, but like human interest. That's not really news so much as this lurid thing that we can talk about or not, but you know, he cared about it and he, he put a lot of work into it and people were moved by it and interested in it. So I, I liked the fact that there's no cartoon villain Mm. in this movie. Everybody cares about doing things right. They have different qualifications. Mm-hmm. They have different degrees of ethics over what they're willing to do or not do. But I do like the fact that everybody, you know, in a way wanted the same thing, at least. Mm-hmm. I think my lesson really is like, it's more just the personal one, which I've grown acclimated to over time, which is just because someone is well-intentioned doesn't mean that they need to have a place in your life. That's true. For sure. And yeah, to, to your point, I think that like most of our, and this is why I think over time, you know, like comic movies maybe get unrelatable or further away from our reality <laughs> is that it's like most of our strife isn't saving the universe. Most of our strife is like learning how to work with people we have like differing perspectives from. <laughs> yeah. And knowing that like the funding source that makes us exist is always ever changing and that creates anxiety and based on the whims of jack nicholson yeah and based on the whims of jack oh my god the the scene where the guy whoever that guy is the station manager or whatever essentially says that jack could so- soften the blow by knocking a million off his salary <laughs> mm-hmm. how resonant is that to these days still yeah. luckily we don't have that problem yeah. anymore the millennium <laughs> happened and uh, we're, we're good we do not have to worry about the whims of men with crazy eyebrows anymore <laughs> yeah we don't worry about the whims of millionaires anymore we now worry about the whims of billionaires yes And that's progress. (laughs) Oh, my God. Anyway, we know that Albert Brooks becomes a father in the movie broadcast news. That's so true. Who, Paul, in your view, is the daddy of broadcast news? Uh, Well, it's, again, not a, a deep insight on my part and maybe the obvious choice. But since I get to go first, I'm going to make it. And I think that Robert Prosky, the sort of fatherly news director... I find mm. to be the daddy partly because, you know, he sort of fulfilled that function in, in my time growing up. He was on the show Hill Street Blues. Oh, of course. For yeah. some time mm. prior to this. Yeah. And he was uh, also, you know, later on, he, he was in Gremlins 2. Yes. Uh, yeah. And of course, he was in The Natural, uh, played played the heavy in The Natural. And he exudes that certain old bearded, paunchy guy who just loves you and wants the best for you. And I appreciated his vibe throughout the movie and in his sort of old man 80s sweaters, gently encouraging uh, Holly Hunter in a very fatherly manner. That's a great pick. I'm sure I'm sure Sarah's going to pick exactly the right choice. I am going to nod hmm. in the meantime, just because of it's such a perfect comic aside, our two composers <laughs> who like to them, the most important thing that's happening that day is presenting their idea for the intro music to the news, the next, the next iteration. Mm -hmm. And they play their balls off to present it to their bosses and their bosses just nod for a quick second and go back to talking about how much they love Tom. And there's (laughs) something about being an artist for hire where 
that scene is so fucking resonant and they they don't even pick that up because they're so proud of what they just did it's like yeah it's like watching puppies yeah <laughs> sarah marshall yes who's your daddy <laughs> Um, it's gotta be Joan Cusack. Yeah. Yeah. Joan Cusack is always my daddy. I think she's always the best thing in whatever she's in. This is also very near the start of her career. This is this movie came out three years after Sixteen Candles, where she played girl in headgear. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I watched an interview with the two main Cusacks recently where she told a story about her first role being in My Bodyguard. Oh. And she told a story yeah. about I don't think okay. this is exactly it, but she like they gave her money to go out and buy like wardrobe and she was like and so i got these lavender corduroy pants <laughs> and repeated that phrase many times and it became like a poem and yeah she's just like that you could have had this whole movie without her but like she's the fifth thing on the plate to brighten yeah. the palette you know like she's the secret ingredient and i love her so much Paul, how would you like people to find you after they, if they don't already know who you are and they listen and they're like, holy shit, more Paul. How would they go about that? Uh, for music stuff, which by the way, it's it's a comedy music thing is what Paul and Storm does. And we can find us in all the usual places. Just search for Paul and Storm or at Paul and Storm or what have you. Uh, if you're at all intrigued by the idea of the, what was it? Sexy nerd boat. <laughs> Kinky nerd boat. Kinky nerd boat. Thank you. And by the way, that we should emphasize that that is our take on it. You guys aren't selling this as a kink cruise. That's a different thing. No, it, it, <laughs> our, our cruise is about enthusiasms of all kinds. Yes. And the ability to explore them uh, openly and without judgment. Uh, but Joko Cruise, J-O-C-O Cruise.com. And the next one sales March 9th through 16th of 2024. It's some of the most fun I've had all year. Yeah. Part of why we love workplace stories is that workplaces, especially in the 90s, allowed us to form community and where we really seek safety and joy is in community. And I think part of what we do in a larger society that, you know, is really rapidly disintegrating in all the wrong directions is to create temporary utopias. And yeah. I think this is uh, one of them. That's so nice. I'm pulling that quote right now. <laughs> Paul, thank you so much for being here and for bringing us this meaty film. It was so much fun to do it with you. Thanks so much. I am a genuine fan of the show and thrilled to have had the chance to be here. What a, yeah, what a perfect reason to have you here. Thank oh, you so much for everything. Have a great day, Paul. Thank you. That is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thanks so much to Paul Saborin for joining us on this episode. Thanks to Carolyn Kendrick for producing and editing. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing the episode. Thanks to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make the episode sound so sweet. We appreciate you, Lesh. Thank you for listening. Please let folks know that you love this show. Please leave us a uh, five-star review with some kind words about why you enjoy the show that sort of thing helps i don't understand what spotify is doing with its podcasting but it asks questions about how you felt about the episode after if you feel compelled let let them know maybe it works maybe it's helpful for us i don't know they throw all these new functions at us and they're like uh encourage people to engage this and i don't know what it does but uh if it helps people know what we do please do it <laughs> That's how we find new listeners. And we love new listeners. And we love you. Thank you so much for being here. And don't 
forget that you, my friend, are good. You can uh, support the show if you're not already. Patreon, Apple Podcast subscriptions. You help make the thing possible. You are the reason why the show keeps going. And in exchange, you get bonus episodes. Check it out. Find us in all the social places if you uh, are inclined to do so. All right, everybody. Have a wonderful day.